those glorious truths about the new Jerusalem, that you would again enable us to persevere into that day, that we'd live for these things, for these promises, and forsake the fleeting pleasures of sin. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, dear ones, last time we left off at the end of Revelation 21, we were still in the New Jerusalem, and today we're going to be in the New Jerusalem as well. But as we look at the first five verses of Revelation chapter 22, we're going to be looking at life inside of the New Jerusalem, and very specifically, how that which was taken away from us at the garden because of sin is now going to be restored, namely the tree of life and also this river of life that flows from God. What we're going to learn today is that life is found in God. If you're with him, you'll have life forever. If you're separated from him, you have death. And so here we see what's taken away from us at the Garden of Eden because of our sin is now restored. And so we begin by looking here at verse 1 through 2, verses 1 through 2 of Revelation 22. John wrote this. He says, Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now, here notice in the beginning in verse 1, John says, then he showed me. Now, this should bring us back to Revelation 21.9, where you had this angel who was responsible for showing John everything associated with the New Jerusalem. So he is the one who shows John around, as it were, showing him what will take place in the eternal states in the New Jerusalem. So that's who's showing him is this angel back in Revelation 21.9. Now, notice here this reference to the river. This river of life flows from the throne and so life ends up proceeding from God. That's the picture. But remember, there was a river back in the garden. Do you remember back in Genesis chapter 2, God had given a, a life-giving river, as it were, in the garden that ended up breaking into four different parts. Remember, there was Gihon, Pishon, the Tigris, and the Euphrates. Well, that was the river that was in the Garden of Eden that we were expelled from because of sin, and now the picture is it's being reestablished. In fact, turn your Bibles back to Genesis 2.10. Genesis 2.10, we'll just read that. Genesis 2.10, notice it says, Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. So notice this, there was one river, it came out of Eden, then that branched into four. Okay, so now the depiction is this is going to be reestablished. What's very interesting is even in the millennial kingdom, do you remember when Jesus Christ is reigning on the throne, there's going to be living waters that proceed from his throne. Half of the living waters are going to go where? They're going to go to the Mediterranean, but the other half are going to go to the Dead Sea. We learned about this in Ezekiel 47, where even the Dead Sea is going to spring forth life. Do you remember that? There's going to be fish in the Dead Sea. Uh, people are going to be, to be able to eat from the fish in the Dead Sea. So Messiah is going to reign one day from Jerusalem. Living waters come from his throne. Why? Because God is a life-giving God. 
Okay, let's read that. Zechariah 14.8. I've already read to you Ezekiel 47. Turn your Bibles to Zechariah 14.8. I want you to see how in the millennial kingdom... Now remember, the millennial kingdom is before the eternal states that we're reading about now. But I want you to see that there's going to be a river in this idea that Christ is the one who gives life to his people. He's the one who gives living waters. Zechariah 14.8, notice it says, in that day. Now remember, this is the day that the Messiah, Christ, is going to be reigning from Jerusalem. And in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea. It will be in summer as well as in winter. That's the same thing that's talked about in Ezekiel 47, where we see, again, the restoration of the Dead Sea. Now, think about during Jesus' earthly ministry, Jesus, remember, in John chapter 4, explained to the Samaritan woman that if she really knew what would give life, she would come to him and not just drink from the well, but she would drink from him and have water that would well up to eternal life. Why? Because Christ is God. And if you come to him, you have forgiveness of sins and you have life everlasting. And so even in John chapter 7, this idea that life-giving water proceeds from Christ is a theme that we see. Uh, Remember you had the great Feast of Tabernacles. Does anyone remember where the Feast of Tabernacles, what month that occurs? It's on the seventh month. It's five days after the Day of Atonement. And I always love that picture because the Feast of Tabernacles recounts how God tabernacled with his people in the wilderness. Well, when God sets up their festival year, five days after the Day of Atonement, they had to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And I love that. It's as if God says, I save you, but then I'm also going to live with you. And that's what you see. He saves us, and one day we're going to live with him, right? Well, remember, the Feast of Tabernacles was a feast that for seven days... In Jerusalem, while Jesus was doing his earthly ministry, for seven days, the priest, every day of the feast, would take a great golden flagon, is what they called it. It was filled with water. And they'd take the water from the pool of Siloam, and there would be a huge procession that they'd walk through the water gate, and they would go to the temple, and they would pour out the water, and they would give some prayer. We're not exactly sure how they would pray. But the idea was that they were saying, look, life-giving water flows from our God. Well, isn't it interesting? Jesus, on the very last day of that feast, says, this is ultimately fulfilled in me. In fact, turn your Bibles, if you will, to John 7.37. The reason I want to do this is I want to show you how this theme of life-giving water proceeding from Christ is a theme that we should see all the way through the Bible. And here we see it fulfilled in Revelation 22. So John 7.37. Now, as you turn to John 7.37, remember there were seven days to this Feast of Tabernacles. And again, every day of those seven days, you'd have this great procession where the priests would bring the water from the Pool of Siloam, and they would bring it into the altar in the temple, and they would pour it out. Well, on the eighth day, that was the day after all the festivities were done, but it was a solemn assembly. And it was on that day that there would be reflection on the entirety of the Feast of Tabernacles. It's this day that Jesus is speaking up here. John seven thirty seven. it says, Now on the last day, notice it's called the great day of the feast. So this is the solemn assembly, the eighth day. 
where they would be reflecting on what had just transpired. It says, Jesus stood up and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. So Jesus is reappropriating this idea of the water that flows from Jerusalem bringing life. And he says, ultimately, it's fulfilled in him. So think about this idea. There's three stages I like to think about of Christ pouring out living water. Jesus is with his people in the wilderness. That is the people of Israel. Remember, um, in fact, can somebody read 1 Corinthians 10.4? Eric, could you find somebody that could read that? 1 Corinthians 10.4. And the reason I want that read, oh, Mike has got it. Mike Hoffman Mike, okay, in front of you. Okay, here you go. So listen to this. Before you read this, Mike, this is about Christ in the wilderness with his people. So think about the pre-incarnate Christ, the second person of the Trinity, was sustaining the people in the wilderness. And so what did he do for them? Well, one of the things they needed was they needed to be able to drink. And he is the one who provided that for them. So listen to how Paul explains this, 1 Corinthians 10.4. And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from a spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Wow. So they drank from the spiritual rock, and Paul explicitly says that that was Christ. So one of the things that's curious about that is we say, well, wait a minute. How is Christ a rock? Well, what we have to understand is that Christ is the one who is, in his pre-incarnate state, sustaining the people of Israel in the wilderness. So, for example, in Exodus 17, 6, remember the rock is struck at Mount Horeb? And you really have a miracle. What proceeds from the rock? Living water. Well, who is ultimately doing that? Is it just this rock? They happen to be so lucky, quote-unquote, to use jargon of our day, They found a rock that water would come out of. No. It was provision from Christ. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying it was provision. So living water came from Christ. If you want to have life, you have to have Christ. Uh, We see the same thing happen in Numbers chapter 20. Remember the waters at Meribah? The bitter waters? Well, he allowed them to drink, didn't he? Remember Moses struck the rock? He did it twice instead of uh, once, right? So he struck the rock, and what happened? Waters came so that the people could drink. Now, think about it. Jesus in his earthly ministry, he says, if you come unto me, you have living water. Well, in Acts 2.33, in fact, somebody read Acts 2.33. What does Jesus do? He's the one who pours out the Spirit. That's the sine qua non, the essential ingredient of the new covenant is the pouring forth of the Spirit that Christ gives. Why? Because if the Spirit isn't poured out, people can't come to Christ, and they can't have living water. So not only does Christ provide for salvation through his death, burial, resurrection, his perfect life, but he's also the one who pours out the life-giving water is the symbol of pouring out the Spirit. So if someone would read Acts 2.33, yes, Nancy, thank you. Acts 2.33 Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. Wow. So Christ is the one who pours forth the Spirit. Now, do you remember there in, in church history, there was a big debate as to whether or not the Spirit flows from either the Father or the Son? Well, the answer is it's really both. 
Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the Son, also is the one who commands the Spirit to come forth. So yes, we can say that the Father sends the Holy Spirit, but the Son also is depicted right there in Acts 2.33 is sending forth the Spirit. So this idea then of the new covenant and the new age that we are living in, I don't mean the new age spirituality in that sort of sense, but in the new covenant age, the essential ingredient of it is the poured forth spirit. Amen. That's how people come to faith. And always, how does it come? It comes from Christ. Now, um, I'm sorry, Paul, go ahead. You had a question or a comment. Uh, on John, uh, the fourth chapter, is talking to the Samaritan woman. He says, uh, in verse 13, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks from, of this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink from the water I give will never be thirsty. Great connection, Paul. Exactly right. He's the one, if you come to him, he'll never drink, you have to drink again. You have eternal life. Absolutely. So the three stages, one in the wilderness, two at, after his first advent, but the third stage is going to be after his second advent. Turn your Bibles again. To, well, you know, in fact, I just read this, Zechariah 14.8. We already read that. So the third stage, Zechariah 14.8. Think about Jesus has returned. He's defeated his enemies at the Battle of Armageddon. He sets his throne inside the temple. This is the earthly temple that will be in the earthly Jerusalem. And what proceeds from him are living waters. So now as we come to Revelation chapter 22, all of the inhabitants of the new Jerusalem are going to be participants of this living water that forever proceeds from the throne. So that's the imagery. If you come to Christ, if you come to the living God, you find living water. And this is the living water that originally was in the garden that Adam and Eve were expelled from. All of this is now being restored here in Revelation 22 in the New Jerusalem. Now, notice here, we also see the source of the river is from the throne. Notice it says it's clear as crystal. I'm looking at verse 1 at the end. The river of the water of life, clear as crystal. It's coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Notice it's from both of them. So here we see both the Father and Son share the same throne. And this is, again, a very important theme. Remember the most prolifically quoted psalm or Old Testament passage in the New Testament is Psalm 110.1. So if you're going to take one prophecy and say this is the prophecy that the New Testament writers cited more often than any other Old Testament prophecy, Psalm 110.1. And I love it. When you read it in Hebrew, it literally says, Yahweh made an utterance to my Adonai. My Adonai is my Lord. So it's my Lord saying to my Lord. Now what I love about that, notice it's Yahweh making a divine utterance to David's Lord. He says, my Lord. And in the, in the Hebrew, there's actually what we call a first-person singular pronominal suffix. And all that means is that there's a, a suffix on this word that really shows us that it's my Lord. Now, the reason I'm hanging on that a little bit is when David wrote that, there was no higher authority. He was the king of Israel, and Israel was the chosen nation. So what higher authority was there on earth than King David? Well, there wasn't any. So when he says, the Lord said to my Lord, the question is, well, who could be David's Lord except God? 
So you really have Trinitarian communication. You have a communication between the Father and the Son. And what does he say? Yahweh made an an utterance to my Adonai, to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And so here you see the invitation in Psalm 110.1 that the Son is going to sit at the very throne at the right hand of God. And now here we see that, yes, it's fulfilled. It's fulfilled forevermore in the new creation. Now, Revelation 3.21, listen to this great promise that was given. He who overcomes, remember the seven churches? You always give this promise, uh, Jesus does, to those who overcome by faith in Christ. He says, he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me, this is Christ saying this, on my throne also as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So the father and son then are ruling together. Ruling together. I like there was a famous pastor, I won't mention his name, but he was on an airline flight. And I love this story because he, um, he didn't want to divulge that he was a pastor because then he would be in an endless conversation, he thought. So this one guy was prying, though. He says, well, what do you do for a living? And the pastor said, well, you might say that I work for a father-son operation. (laughs) And I thought that was a very coy and clever way of uh, saying that he worked for for God. So very cool. It's a father and son operation. That's exactly right. Now, notice in verse 2, it says, In the middle of the street on either side of the river was the tree of life. Okay, now, what's what's difficult here, there's a difficult Greek construction. In the Greek construction, I just put it in English for our sakes, but in the Greek construction, it literally says from here and from there. And it's very unusual. I've never seen this anywhere else in the New Testament. But when you unpack that, what simply John is saying, it's on either side of this river, there's going to be these trees. Okay? Now, notice he singles out a particular tree, and I'll explain why that is. But on either side of this river, there's a tree of life. Now, what does this tree of life remind us of? What was in the garden that we lost access to? Well, it was the tree of life. That's right. So we were expelled from the river that brought life. We were expelled from the tree of life. We were expelled from God who gives life. And so again, we see not only this is literally going to be reversed, but it's also symbolic. So we don't have to choose, again, between symbolism and literal. It's both. It's literal, and it's highly symbolic as well. Both and. Yes, Eric. I have a question, actually. Um, uh, Okay, there's... On either side of the river was the tree of life. So there's one tree, but it's on either side of the river. So does the river flow right through the middle of the tree or, or what? No, I know. Very good question. I've never thought about that, really. I know. It's a, it's a puzzlement, isn't it? I know. I, um, I'll, I'll give you what I think it is. I think that this tree, let me just cite this great scholar, Robert Thomas. He says it better than I could. He says, quote, this is an instance of the generic use of sulan, the term for tree. Uh, Bob has talked about this idea of sulan being the tree of life where Jesus crucified. It's the idea that there's a generic use of this representing numerous trees. So more than likely, there are numerous trees. And if you take any one of them, it is like the tree of life. So he just focuses on the singular so that we're sure to catch the connection back to Genesis. But the idea would be that you have a river on each side are these trees of life. But there's a, he singles one because what's true of one of them is true of all of them 
but he's doing it deliberately to bring us back to the garden, the tree. Yeah. I think it's to go back to the garden. Exactly. Yep. Does that make sense? I think that that's the best way to understand it. So it's the generic use of a singular referring to the many. But it's a literary device to bring us back to the garden. Yeah, and actually, I think when we go back to Genesis, that's where we, Scripture explains Scripture and, and you know, to, well to clarify it that way. In fact, let's, let's read the account where we were excluded from the tree of life. Everyone turn your Bibles, if you will, to Genesis chapter 3, verses 22 through 24. Genesis three twenty two through 24. Here we see because of the sin, the rebellion of Adam and Eve, we end up not only being excluded from the garden and God's presence, but from this tree of life. Genesis three twenty two through 24, it says, Then Yahweh God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Verse 23 says, Therefore Yahweh sent him out from the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. And so there you see us excluded from it. Yes, Eric. I'm getting, I think I'm getting some insight here, so be, yeah. be careful, everybody. Yeah. Okay. I, well, I might buckle be in. <laughs> but in other words, in other words, in the Garden of Eden, you see, man, uh, you know, eating from the tree of life, God had to prevent that. Yeah. There was one tree, one tree of life, and and man was not to eat of it because he had disobeyed and all that. But in the eternal state, you know, the the, the world that will come, you can have. That same spe- that tree, you can have many of them, because we will be eating of that tree. Amen. And that's, and that's a good thing. God wants us to eat of that tree. Amen. And does that make sense? Well said. We're never to be barred again. Yeah. The, the, the sin problem has been eradicated through Christ. Uh, so the only people that will be partakers of the new Jerusalem and the eternal states will be believers. And so that shows us the once and for all cleansing from sin that Christ gives, never to be barred from the tree of life, never to be barred from this life-giving waters that flow from God. So, amen. Now, to press it further to say, well, wait a minute, now, does this mean we have to eat this every day? Otherwise, we'd kind of wilt a little bit. I, I don't want to, we don't know how this works out metaphysically, but the idea is that the, the, it'll be literal trees. I, I, I don't think we can ever say, no, they're not literal. They're, no, they're literal, but how we have to eat them or, you know, life comes from God. And that's the great point that's being made here. And we'll always be with him, and therefore we have life, yeah. Um, That reminds me, oh, yes, Paul. I don't know if I'm jumping ahead or not, but on uh, 22, Revelation 22, uh, verse, oh, I had it, Uh, 13, I think it is? Yeah. Seals the deal, I believe. Sure, sure. Um. No, it's not verse 13. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> 14. Blessed are those who wash their feet, uh, wash their robes, so that they will have the right to the tree of life and may enter the city of the gates. Amen. Good reading. Thank you, Paul. That's exactly right. That's why it was promised to the overcomer in Revelations chapter 2 and 3. He overcomes. I will grant him access to the tree of life. He'll grant us access to the paradise of God. 
Exactly right. So how are you an overcomer? First John 5, 4 through 5 tells us he who overcomes is the one who believes in Jesus who overcame the world. So it's our faith that overcomes because of Christ. He's the one who overcomes. Amen. Um, you know what I was thinking about is thinking about how life is in God. Do you remember when the Sadducees were debating with Jesus? I always like the, the, they're sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection, right? They didn't believe the resurrection. And remember, they also only would affirm the first five books of Moses. So if you went to the prophets and said, yes, there has to be a resurrection, uh, look at Isaiah 26. Look at Daniel chapter 12. Obviously, there's a resurrection. They would poo-poo that. They only accepted the first five books of Moses. So when Jesus is debating them, do you remember what passage he uses? He uses the narrative in the law that they would accept from Exodus chapter 3, where God says to Moses, tell him, I am sent you. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The reason that's such a powerful rebuttal is because if Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob belong to God, he's a life-giving God. If you're with him, you have life. He's not a death-giving God. In this, now, don't get me wrong, he's a God who judges. But if you're one of his people, you have life. So if you're with him, and he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you have life. That's the power of the answer. And so that's what we're seeing reflected here in Revelation 22. If you're with him, you have life. And all of these added beauties of the, the river and the trees are symbolic. They're literal, but they're also symbolic of that fact. That's how I think we should think about it. But yeah, thank you for the good reading there, Paul, and thanks for the good insight there, Eric. Excellent. Okay, now, let me show you another background to this that some may not have seen this before, and this is kind of fun. I want you to see a foreshadowing of this life-giving river and the trees that give life on either side of it. Do you know that that will actually occur also during the millennial kingdom? So prior to the eternal states, remember, what we're reading about here in Revelation 22 is after the thousand-year reign. Okay, so this is in the eternal states, but during the millennial reign of Christ, as he sits on the throne, and remember I talked about in Ezekiel 47, those rivers, one flows to the Mediterranean and the other flows to the Dead Sea. You're also going to have these trees of life that give healing to the nations. In fact, turn your Bibles to Ezekiel 47.12. Ezekiel 47.12. Please turn your Bibles there. I like to drink after I do that because then it gives you time to turn. Ezekiel 47.12. So again, this is the river that's going to proceed one to the east, one to the west. It's coming from the throne of Christ as he reigns in Jerusalem. It says, by the river on its bank, on one side and on the other. By the way, similar construction in the Greek Septuagint that we have here in Revelation 22. By the river on its bank, on one side and on the other, will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will neither wither nor their fruit fail. They will bear every month because their water flows from the sanctuary. Stop there. Why do they always thrive, these trees? Because the water that feeds them flows from God. And again, the symbol is life is in God. It says, and their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. So now, notice here at the end of Revelation 22, 2, what are the leaves for? 
Well, they're for the healing of the nations. Now, again, don't press this to say, well, wait a minute, this must imply that people are going to be wounded, therefore they're going to be hurt, therefore they need to be healed. That's not the point. The point is there's going to be no more wounding. There's going to be no more heal- or need to be healed in the sense that you're sick because why? You're with God. That's the whole point. You're with him, the one who gives life. Now, we see this restoration of God's paradise. And I want to talk a little bit about this idea of paradise because it's very interesting. Do you realize that the term garden, like when we talk about the Garden of Eden, it really is the term paradisos, the term for paradise. And this is a term that was taken from a Persian concept of paradise where paradise was like a garden or a grand park that you would dwell with your deity in. And so the Hebrews took this concept and they made it biblical as it were. In other words, it's really true that when God dwelt with his people, Adam and Eve, they were in a paradise. That was what the garden was like. In fact, notice here in Genesis 2.8, it says, Yahweh God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. So here we see this garden, this paradise that we were given Well, it was taken away because of sin, Revelation 22 in the New Jerusalem is about paradise restored. Okay, so does everyone see the term garden there? If you look at your Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, that is paradisos. It's the term that we have for paradise in the New Testament. So when Jesus promises, for example, remember the thief on the cross? Remember he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. You're going to be back Where? Where's the man going to go after he dies? Well, he's going to the New Jerusalem. Remember, the New Jerusalem, I think, exists and it comes down. So after you die, where do you go? You go to paradise. So there's a way to have paradise restored. How do you have it? Through faith in Christ. But this paradise was taken away. We were excluded from it because of sin. That's what happened in the garden. Now, I want you to see not only did mankind, not only were we excluded from this paradise with God, but the angels who rebelled as well. In fact, I want to turn, in a moment I'll have us uh, turn to some other passages, but I'm going to put up Ezekiel 28. Now Ezekiel 28, 13 that I'm about to put up on the screen, there's some debate as to what it's about. Technically, Ezekiel 28 is about the king of Tyre. The king of Tyre's name was Ethbaal, Ethbaal II. And many of you have probably heard of one of his wicked daughters, it was Jezebel. Remember Jezebel was the wicked daughter who turned, she married Ahab and turned the Israelites against God into idolatry? Well, that was Ethbaal's uh, daughter. So Ethbaal II was the king of Tyre. And what he did is he actually helped the Babylonians sack Jerusalem in 586. He gloated and hated the Israelites. So because he turned against God's people... God pronounces a judgment. So when you read Ezekiel 28, in the first 12 verses, it really is about the king of Tyre. But when you get to verse 13 all the way to verse 19, you see ultimately the one who is animating the king of Tyre is Satan. Satan is the one who is animating and giving the wicked king of Tyre this attitude. And so that's where we pick it up here in Ezekiel 8, 20, 13. The reason I want you to see this is you're going to see, you know what? Satan was kicked out of the garden as well. He was kicked out of paradise. Now, he's never going to be restored, but I want you to see that both the angelic realm, those who are to dwell in the unseen realm, 
and man, those who are to dwell in the seen realm, are both excluded from paradise because of sin. So notice what it says here. This is ultimately of Satan who's animating the king of Tyre. Ezekiel 20, 13. He says this. He says, you were in Eden, the garden of God. So let's just stop there. The, the contention here is this is Satan who's animating the king of Tyre. And where was he? Well, he was in the paradise of God as well. In fact, listen to the great care that God created him with. He says, every precious stone was your covering. The ruby, the topaz, and the diamond, and the barrel, and the onyx, and the jasper. Now, let me just stop there for a moment. Do you remember all of the stones that we see in the New Jerusalem? Much of these were reflected in the glory that was given to this angel, Satan. Listen to all the lapis and lazuli, the turquoise and the emerald and the gold. The workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you on the day that you were created they were prepared. So here, Satan was depicted, he's the one who's animating the king of Tyre. Why is, does the king of Tyre become haughty and arrogant? Because that's ultimately the attitude that's in Satan. Satan becomes so haughty and arrogant because of his own beauty. In fact, if you have your Bibles open, let's keep reading. This is interesting. Ezekiel 28, 14, we'll read all the way down to verse 19. Notice the description of Satan who ends up getting kicked out of the paradise of God. It says, you were the anointed cherub, the one who covers, it says. Now, let me just stop there. He's referred to as this cherub, so he's this angel. And when he's referred to as the cherub, we have to think of him as the cherub par excellence. In other words, there was no other angel that was as beautiful as him. So remember, the cherubim, according to Exodus 28... These are the angels that cover the mercy seat, the propitiation seat inside the Holy of Holies. So remember, once a year, the high priest would take the blood of the goat and he would pour it on the mercy seat, right? That's where the atonement cover was, the propitiation seat. So the cherubim then are these angels that were in the very throne room of God. That's the access that Satan apparently had. He was one of them. Notice it says, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones in a fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane, common literally, no longer holy, no longer set apart for God. He's profane. And therefore, he goes from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up. Here's his arrogance. It was lifted up because of your, of your own beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. Now stop there for just a moment. Think about the arrogance that Satan has. So he's animating the king of Tyre, but he also animates all those who reject Christ. Ultimately, rejection of Christ is an arrogance. There's an arrogance to it. In fact, what's interesting is we're going to be studying 1 Timothy in our sermons. In 1 Timothy 3.6, as Paul gives out the criteria to be an elder, one of the things that he says, an elder must not be a new convert so that he will not become conceited with arrogance and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil 
Isn't that interesting? So according to 1 Timothy 3.6, how did Satan fall? Because he became conceited. He had arrogance. That's exactly what we're reading about here in Ezekiel 28. Um, verse 17, I'll continue. Actually, in verse 18, notice he says, By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. Therefore, I have brought fire from the midst of you. It has consumed you. And I have turned you to ashes on the earth in the eyes of all who see you. Here's his downfall. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have become terrified and you will cease to be forever. So he's going to be banished forever. There's no hope for Satan. He's always going to be banished from the paradise of God. But the big picture that I want you to see on this slide is that there really was a paradise. There was a paradise for the angelic realm, and there's the paradise for man. And because of sin, we were excluded from that paradise. So what we're reading about then today in Revelation 22 is paradise restored. How? Through faith in Christ. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, you're going to be restored to paradise. And again, that's why we see, for example, Jesus, remember the thief on the cross? He comes to faith. There's no chance for baptism. There's no chance for good works. He trusts upon Christ. His sins are forgiven. He's given the very imputed righteousness of Christ. His sins are atoned for. And what does he have access to immediately that very day? Paradise. Jesus says to him, Luke 23, 43, and he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. He's going back to the garden. Where is it? It's in the New Jerusalem. It's, that's where it is. So this is why when Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The moment you breathe your last, take comfort, dear brothers and sisters. Where do you go? You go to paradise. You go to the garden. You go to the New Jerusalem. That's where you're going. So in the eternal states, this new Jerusalem is coming down. This is why Jesus gives the great promise in John 14. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. Well, where is he doing that? It's in the new Jerusalem. There's a place for us. Uh, Bob and I love that phrase where Jesus says, in my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I love it when Bob always talks about the Bible gives us cold, sober truth. That's exactly what Jesus is telling us. If it weren't so, if you and I were to be so much worm food in the ground, if that's all there was for us, the Lord of glory, the Holy One of Israel, Jesus, the Messiah, he'd give it to us straight. But it is true. There really is this restoration to paradise. That's what Revelation 22 should excite us about. See, when you start seeing the connections to say, well, wait a minute, this paradise is restored. It's in the new Jerusalem. Think about it. This is the great promise that we have. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 3 through 4, he was given a vision of this paradise. He says, I know how, excuse me, he says, and I know how such a man, Paul says, whether in body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise. Here he sees the new Jerusalem and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. Now, to me, what's so fascinating about this 2 Corinthians 12, 3 through 4, as I was reading it afresh this past week, isn't it interesting? Paul has no idea how he got there. He doesn't know if it's a vision or if he was physically transported. But what he can tell you for sure is he saw paradise. He saw it. Now, it's also interesting to note he's not enabled to speak of it. That should warn all of us about these books for people. Remember, people will die and they'll come back, supposedly, and they'll say, oh, I saw God and I saw this. I was in heaven. I saw paradise. 
Well, that's, and so they'll sell thousands and thousands of copies of these books. But here, an apostle, Paul, personal spokesman for Christ, he's not permitted to speak of it. So are you with me? That means those who are claiming to speak, I think, are $3 bills. They're not genuine. We, we shouldn't listen to them. Okay? But my point in saying all this is this paradise is real. The moment you breathe your last, you're going to paradise. Let's say you never die. Jesus comes first in the rapture. He raptures you. You're raised from the dead immediately. Remember 1 Thessalonians 4 in the twinkling of an eye? Then what you do is you go to heaven for seven years. You're in the New Jerusalem while he pours out his wrath for seven years, after which he comes back with you and sets up his kingdom, and you reign upon the earth with him. And there's waters of life that flow from the temple. But then after the thousand-year reign, what does he bring? He brings the new Jerusalem down. So here's my point. Either you die and you go to paradise, or he comes to you and he's bringing you to paradise. But the point is, the moment you trusted in Jesus Christ, you have paradise. That is exciting, dear brothers and sisters. That's how you and I can mourn, but not as those who have no hope, as Paul says. I tell you, some of the most difficult things are putting loved ones in the ground, isn't it? I just know some that are dealing with that. Burying loved ones isn't easy. But it makes it a lot easier if you know they're in paradise, if they're a believer, right? That's what this is about. Yeah, I'm sorry, Lonnie, I was going on chattering away. Yeah, I just uh, wanted to say, as far as Satan is concerned, uh, at least one more of the other prophets, Isaiah gives like the origin. I don't know about other prophets, if they also talk about Satan, but... I mean, there's a reference to a king or something, too, like in Isaiah. Isaiah 14. But yeah, yes. the origins. Uh. I, I mean, exactly. Bob, maybe you have I wanted comment. to bring that up, too. Yeah. Um, at issue, okay, some yeah. people will claim that Isaiah and Ezekiel are just about kings, and we can't use them to discuss Satan. Right. But let me throw out a theological category and see what Eric thinks about it as well. There are, I believe, in the Bible, double reference prophecies. Yeah. That's, I've seen that term. Yeah. Uh, and they can, at one and the same time, be talking about a real king on the earth. Yep. And yet a future fulfillment. We, don't, we know for sure that's true about Christ. Exactly. Because, for example, in 2 Samuel 7, we have a prophecy about this coming king who will be descendant of David. Yeah. But in the same reference, it says when he sins, he'll be uh, punished by the rods. Remember that one? Right. And ultimately, in the short term, it applies to Solomon. But It yeah. only applied to Solomon because right. Jesus is sinless. But... There's a reference to Jesus in some ways bearing sin. That's right. Even though he's sinless. So having seen that, I think it's valid that Ezekiel 28 is at one and the same time speaking about someone on the scene of history at that time. Wow. And in the same way, telling us something about Satan who inspired him. Exactly. And I would say the same thing about... Isaiah 14, 
because here, there we have Satan going, I will, I will, I will. And we learned something about the nature of sin right, and rebellion. Right. Yeah, but some uh, scholars will say, no, no, you're breaking the rules. You can't do that. So maybe you know more than I do about it. But I, I think it's clear enough from how the New Testament uses the old that there are such things is double reference prophecies. Absolutely. And, and you know, um, interesting, just think about unpacking the New Testament for a moment. Uh, Bob is going to be teaching this when we get to it. I Think about uh, um, Ephesians chapter 6. Where does the ultimate battle lie? It's not with flesh and blood, but with powers and principalities. It's the spirits behind the, pow- behind the uh, physical rulers. So think about in Daniel chapter 10. Do you remember you had Daniel was praying... And then it's revealed to us why there wasn't an answer right away. It was because of the prince of Persia had restrained the angelic messenger. So there really are these demonic beings that are behind what you see on earth. In the same way, you have this rebuke of this real king of Tyre in Ezekiel 28. But God does unpack the fact that ultimately who stands behind him is Satan. Obviously, the king of Tyre was never placed in the Garden of Eden. He he just wasn't. And there's nothing in the Gaza Strip today or in the area of the Philistines that you could say, well, yeah, that was like the Garden of Eden. It just wasn't. Think about when you look at Isaiah chapter 13, it's all about how Babylon is going to be thrown down. It's a look at the future day of the Lord. So what God does is he says, I'm going to throw down all nations and rulers in this future day of the Lord. And to prove that I'm going to do that to you, I'm going to do it in the short term to Babylon. So he throws down ba- the Babylonians at the hands of the, the Medo-Persians, right? He does it. It's to short term. So in other words, in the short term, he's going to throw down Babylon so that you know one day in the future day of the Lord, he's going to throw down Babylon. But after he unpacks Isaiah 13, in chapter 14, what he does is, is let me show you who's ultimately behind that. And so he talks about the king of Babylon, but he's really talking about the one who's motivating the king of Babylon which is whom? It's Satan, just as Bob said. So you see the same thing in Ezekiel 28. The king of Tyre is haughty and arrogant. Who ultimately is behind him? Satan. So yeah, I think it's a valid hermeneutic, and we're just reading the Bible for what it says. Yes, I'm sorry. So uh, Brian, and then we had somebody else? Okay. Yeah. Hey, oh, I'm sorry, just Brian. I'm, con- I'm confused about something. I'm sure you'll be able to straighten me out. Yeah. We have the uh, tree of life in the river in Genesis. Sin enters. Uh, Adam and Eve are banished. And then it's guarded by an angel with a flaming sword. Yeah. And then we come into the new Jerusalem, and we see the tree and the river again. Now, we saw in Ezekiel where that same tree and river is present in the millennial kingdom. Yeah. There's sin present in the millennial kingdom. Why? Why is following my question? Yeah. Why was? Why did the tree have to be guarded by an angel with a flaming sword, and you couldn't have sin there in Genesis? Yeah. But yet in the millennial kingdom, that'll be there, but there'll still be sin present. Right, good, good question. First of all, in Ezekiel 47, we see this river that flows from the throne of Christ reigning. It never makes reference specifically to the tree of life, but there are, there's rivers of living water. And the idea is that if you go up to Christ, you're going to find life. 
He's the one who reigns in Jerusalem. And this is the great fulfillment where all the nations, by and large, are going to come up. They're going to worship the king, and they'll find life too. There really is going to be healing for the nations. Now, saying that, that doesn't mean that there isn't rebellion. In fact, we know at the end of the thousand years, there's the great battle of Gog and Magog, which all the nations come together. Christ calls down fire upon them. But conspicuously absent is the reference to the tree of life. Now, there are trees of life, and they give healing to the nations. But So there's a diminutive form, a foreshadowing form in the millennial kingdom. Yes, there's still sin, but if you come to Christ where the rivers flow from his throne, you're going to find, I'm sorry, if you come to Jerusalem, you're going to find life. Does that make sense? And it's literal, but it's also symbolic. You go to, the, you go to this God up in Jerusalem, you'll find life. That's where life is. And the, this, the literal and the symbolic join together with these waters that flow from him. But yeah, the, when we get to the eternal states, then there's no more sin. And then you see the specific reference to the tree of life and the river of life that proceeds from the throne. So I hope that answers. So the, the millennial kingdom is always a foreshadowing of the greater and the eternal states. Yeah, amen. Now, let me just show you a passage then that talks about this restoration of all things. You remember, this is the second sermon Peter gave after Pentecost here in Acts 3.21. First, in, in verse 19, if you backed up, he says everyone is to repent so that he may send the Christ. Well, it talks about whom heaven must receive until one, until the period of the restoration of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Now, the restoration of all things, we often think just the millennial kingdom, but the restoration of all things also incorporates what? The eternal states. That what was taken away at the garden is again going to be restored. That what we lost is going to be gained forevermore. That's the idea. Um, a couple more passages I just want to read. We've got time. Um, I want you to read about this restoration to Eden in the millennial kingdom. Uh, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Isaiah 51.3. Please turn your Bibles there. I want you to see that, as Brian alluded to, there's a foreshadowing of this return to Eden, even in the millennial kingdom, but it ultimately finds its eternal fruition and fulfillment in the new Jerusalem. Isaiah 51.3. Listen to the great promise. What is God going to do for Israel? Now remember in Isaiah 51, he's indicted them throughout the book for trusting in foreign alliances, for idolatry, for sin and rebellion. And because of that, he would send the Assyrians upon them and they would absolutely ransack the nation. They would have no, uh, a lot of the physical aspects of the land would be destroyed, the trees, etc., etc. But here's the great promise that's fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. Isaiah 51, 3, it says, Indeed, the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all of her waste places and her wilderness. He will make like Eden and her desert like the garden of Yahweh. Joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving and sound of melody. So notice, even though they rebelled against God, even in Isaiah 51, 3, the promise is he's going to bring them back to the garden. And so you see this happen in the millennial kingdom, but it ultimately comes to fruition and forever fulfillment, as it were in the new Jerusalem in Revelation 22. Uh, Revelation 2.7, I'll just write, read this to you. Revelation 2.7, we saw this great promise. This is a promise that Jesus gave to the church at Ephesus. Remember, he gives promises to those who overcome to the seven churches. Here's the promise to Ephesus. 
Jesus says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, remember you overcome by faith in Christ, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. So we're going to have paradise restored, dear brothers and sisters, and there really is a paradise for the people of God where the curse is removed. And that's here now the theme in verses 3 through 5. There will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will be no longer, excuse me, and there will no longer be any night. And they will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun. Because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. Now, here we see the curse is going to be removed. Now, remember, what was the first curse in the Bible? Well, the first curse that ever came was in Genesis 3.14 when God pronounced a curse upon Satan. So that's the first curse that comes because of rebellion and sin. And that curse upon Satan will never be removed. He's not redeemable. He will perish. We know that from Scripture. But the curse for mankind can be removed. And has been removed by the work of Christ. Genesis 3.17, let me read this to you. It says, Then Adam, he said to him, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, rather than God, would be implied, and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Think about it. There was a curse that came upon the ground. So when you and I work... It's not always easy. We have to work by the sweat of our brow. The thorns and the thistles we have to remove. We're out of the garden now. And that's why when you have a bad day, you can say to yourself at the end of a tough day at work, your boss doesn't like you, say, hey, there's the curse, there's the thorns and thistles. Um, I laughed one day, Bob and I were doing radio, and he was talking about an emerging church. And I used, I don't, when we talk about emerging church, it's really not a church. But it is emerging. And what he talked about is, remember, you talked about the building. They didn't want to get rid of any of the thorns and thistles that were growing up because they're natural. And so, yeah, prairie restoration. And so it's interesting as people become more green and worship Mother Earth, they don't remove the thorns and thistles that came because of the curse. Are you with me? But you and I are commanded to work until the ground, and we have to overcome the curse. Yeah, Bob. Yeah, the prevailing view out there, yeah. in many, many cases, needs to be correct, especially in the minds of Christians, so we don't think like the pagans. Right. And what you're talking about, in the minds of people who follow Hegel and, and so forth, that everything's going to eventually turn into paradise on earth without yeah. judgment. Which is what immersion believes. Exactly. When we preach future judgment, it offends them because they want paradise on earth without judgment. But the fact is, nature is fallen. Nature, I tell people this straight head on, nature doesn't care about you. <laughs> That's right, amen. But they believe it. Yeah. Because we have a neo-pagan nature-worshipping society. That's the prevailing religion, whether in or outside of church, yeah. is neo-pagan nature worship. And the idea of nature is going to take care of you, and 
nature's mad at you because you're a human and you're doing things nature is not happy with. But whether they're using a figure of speech where they're giving human characteristics to what is uh, not really human, or I think it's more than that, I think they actually believe this lie. Right, right. Yeah, because it's a rejection of your need for Christ. Yeah. Okay, so if becoming one with nature saves you, you don't need Christ. Right. But the problem is, now I talk to people who got saved out of that. It's not new. It was around in the 70s. The idea was get out of society, go out in the wilderness, live in a teepee and smoke marijuana and whatever, hashish or whatever they had out in their teepee. And you kind of get tuned in to the world out there of the nature spirit. Yeah. But it, it literally, that's what was going on in some cases. I knew people got saved out of that. The problem was it doesn't really work that way because sin goes out there with you. And the same things that they thought they were going to escape by getting away from cities and people to become one with nature ended up, even if it's just you and your girlfriend or wife or whatever, they got mad at each other and all these problems. The sin problem was everywhere. Plus, nature really isn't trying to help you because... The storm, the tornado, the drought, all of these things come because the fall is real. Yeah. And I tell people that what the Bible tells us does comport with the objective reality we can observe. Nature is beautiful and we love it. We love to be on the lake or in the forest or to take a walk or whatever. That's true. Because God did create. Yeah. And earth has life on it because of the way God created it. Yeah. Including all these constants, the atmosphere and so on. It's the way it is so we can live here. But it's also fallen. So we see the tornadoes and the hurricanes and the fires. And and it's a horrible thing. Now, for example, what's going on in California. And we're concerned about our loved ones out there. So, um... We just need to believe the Bible and come to Christ as the Savior and believe these promises that Eric is teaching us about, that this future paradise is real. It was. It will be again, only even in a better state. And it is yet future. But if we start thinking... If it's not paradise now, we'll start believing these stupid ideas and vote for people who believe stupid ideas and try to make heaven on earth. And every time anybody's done that, every single time, millions and millions and millions of people die. Amen. And they don't seem to care because they don't believe humans are created in the image of God. So if... 45 million die here and 12 million die here and 3 million die there. That's okay because we're still going to have our paradise. Yeah. As Christians, we need to believe that every human is created in the image of God and valuable and that sin is real and that we need a savior. Amen. And so I, I thank God for Eric that he's oh, thanks, Bob. pointing us to the truth of the Bible here. Because 
our friends and loved ones and yeah. acquaintances don't believe these things. That's right. They're trying to get paradise now. You know, I was thinking about as we stand in this room here, um, I know we have a couple of farmers here, but most of us aren't farmers. And I think one of the difficulties is in American life as we get away from an agricultural society. You see, farmers have to deal with the curse. They have the thorns and the thistles. Bob knows the what that. Grow. The weeds grow. But when you get your food, it's always in a nice container and it's always at the grocery store. You can deceive yourself into thinking, well, the curse is removed and it's doable by human effort, but it's not. It's still there. Marxism today that we see on the move in America is the taking of the haves from the haves, giving to the have-nots with the attempt to try to bring paradise here and now. Uh, You had Adolf Hitler try to bring his thousand-year Reich. He was trying to establish paradise here and now. That's what Stalin did. That's what Mao did. It didn't lead to heaven on earth. It led to hell on earth. And that's what the Antichrist will do. Bob is just saying the desire to bring paradise here and now leads to Babylon. It leads to the Antichrist and this one world order. But God, through his grace and his mercy, brings us back to paradise by his work alone. Yes. All right. I see we're out of time, so I'll make this real quick. But I thought this was a good example of what we were just talking about. Yeah. Um, those of you who are Facebook friends, you know, I've got my boys out in the woods just about every single yeah. day. And two years ago, in our favorite woods, this uh, noxious weed called wild parsnip appeared. <laughs> now, if you get into wild parsnip, you're probably going to the ER, and it's going to be very, very bad for you. Oh, wow. And so, of course, the question is, how are we going to deal with this wild parsnip? And, of course, the... Um, I don't... I don't the, yes, there. thank you. <laughs> I was trying to find a nice way to say that. <laughs> Didn't want them to spray pesticides to kill the wild parsnip because in their mind that would be worse than having the wild parsnip. Right. So they wouldn't let them treat it with pesticides. And so the, the Parks and Rec Department said, well, we're about due for a controlled burn, so we can do a controlled burn. Yeah. And that will take care of the wild parsnip. But no, they didn't want a burn either. And so what they ended up doing was mowing it all down. Well, you know what happens when you mow it down? It spreads it. It spread everywhere. Now it's in most of the parks in Mankato. And nobody will let them do anything about it because it's nature. Therefore, it must be good. And I thought, how... A symbolic of sin that is, too. Yes. Without the remedy to sin, without Jesus, yes. sin will only spread and take take over. You, it, we have to um, take dominion, both of the weeds and of the sin. Amen. And preach the gospel and spray the weeds with pesticides. <laughs> yes. Or it will all take over. Well said, so Jessica. Thanks for ending us with that. You know, I also mourn the fact that you have government officials who are less concerned about people made in the image of God than they are the weeds. And that's a sign of still being under the curse and unregenerate state. But thank you for sharing that great example. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord, I thank you so much that you've given us the knowledge through Scripture that paradise isn't now, but it's coming all through what you've done for us. And I pray that this would be a comfort to any of those out that are listening to this here or over the Internet that are hurting. I pray, Lord, that they would know that the moment they breathe their last, if they're a believer in Christ, they have paradise, that he is coming again, he's bringing paradise, and we should live for those things. Give us the ability, Lord, to forsake sin and the fleeting pleasures that so easily entangle us now. Help us to live for this paradise to come. In Jesus' name, amen.